Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. like a AMA the other day and somebody asked how do I make sure all my food is hot at the same time when I have people over it really stresses me out when like I feel like this is ready before that and I'm rushing at the last minute and my advice to that is always don't do that ever I've had people over where I've been stressed out and nobody has a good time because <laughs> I am a monster um just kidding right guys you're listening to the taste podcast I'm senior editor Anna Huesel and I'm here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard Anna, this show is great. We have Alison Roman, cookbook author of the recent Dining In. We also have Deb Perlman on the show later on. But Alison Roman, we don't talk about the cookies. We don't. We had this conversation back in the fall, right when her cookbook came out. Her cookbook, Dining In, was a massive success. And the thing everyone's talking about is the chocolate chip cookie recipe from the book. Shortbread chocolate chip cookies it's shortbread which is why it's different from every other chocolate chip cookie recipe out there we didn't talk about it hell no we didn't talk about it we talked about lots of other exciting things we talked about why you should always keep boiled potatoes in your refrigerator we talked about how to throw a dinner party without having it be a fancy fussy dinner party kind of a buried lead with allison is that she's a funny fucking human being she's really funny we had a lot of fun here's allison roman with anna hazel at books are magic thanks for coming guys so the book is called dining in yes is this book gonna make me spend less money on grubhub uh ideally yeah um i think that yeah Grubhub is expensive. Food in New York is really expensive. And especially when there's a minimum to order. I would spend like $25 on a spring roll just because like the minimum was too high. And then I would have an extra spring roll and it was weird and I never ate it. And it was basically throwing money in the garbage. So, yeah. So what do you want us to spend money on instead? This book that I wrote. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Buy the book. And then go to the grocery store. Thirty-two fifty-six with tax, I think. Is that right, Michael? Okay. Thirty-two sixty-six. Fantastic. What a deal. Yeah. Are there any like diva ingredients in your book? Like what makes the most appearances and what do you want people to like go stock their fridges with? Uh, well there's a so there's a section in the front called pantry, and that is sort of those are the ingredients that I really cannot cook without um and that if I had those I could make anything with so I'm a huge fan of never leaving the house unless you have to and not spending money on an ingredient unless you're going to use it a million times so I will never ask you to you know go seek this one thing at Calustian's when you live in Brooklyn and you have to go all the way uptown it's super annoying um because I don't want to do that myself so uh offhand some of my favorite things are anchovies and a million kinds of chili flake like dried chili flake and Aleppo pepper flaky salt, olive oil, lemon. I think if I had those five things, I could probably do anything, anything, um, (laughs) most anything. And olive oil, of course. I'm a pretty boring pantry person. I don't have anything wildly exciting or unexpected. Um, There's a little Japanese chili paste that Yuzu Kosho that I love, and that's probably the weirdest thing that I have. Um, 
I don't think that you need some crazy ingredients to make really great food. Uh, everything in the book is also really beautiful. And you styled everything, right? I did, yeah. So it was really important to me that um, this cookbook look real. And it looked like how people actually cook and look how it looks when I cook. And so there are a few instances where there's like a trick the trade, little food styling technique, but not often because I wanted things to be um, like when you make it at home to look at the book and be like, oh, there it is. I made it. It looks just like that. Um, I think so oftentimes people put too much effort into thinking about what food should look like. And then when you make it at home, it doesn't look anything like that. And you probably just feel shitty about it. So I, it was really important that anything that you see in the book is something that doesn't look too perfect. There were a few times actually where I was pretty down on myself, like on the photo shoot, because I was like, I should have hired a food stylist. Like this isn't great. And it's not looking how I want it to look like. And I felt like I had made a mistake. But in retrospect, I'm super, super pleased that I ended up doing it myself, even if it's not perfect, because even like when I'm cooking at home, it's not perfect. And I think that it's more important that what you see in the book reflects reality than some like fantasy version of life and cooking that no, none of us will ever achieve. What's the last really ugly thing that you ate? Oh, I eat ugly stuff all the time. Uh, mostly involve like some like noodle dish that I'm just throwing together because I'm starving. I don't want to be like, I don't make ugly food, but I, it's, I think food is inherently beautiful. And I think that's why it's so nice to make books that are full of it. You know, it's like not hard. It's not a hard subject to photograph. It's inherently colorful and has so much texture and food is beautiful. Allison told me the other day about a recipe that's in the book and sounds freaking awesome, but the photo didn't wind up in the book. Do you want to talk about that? Like what, what made you decide to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm getting so much shit for this from so many people. Uh, there's a recipe called crispy smashed potatoes with fried onions and lots of parsley. They are great. They are great. Um, and they're crispy and golden and like craggly bits. And they have these beautiful rings of fried onion. And they're amazing. And there's not a photo of it in the book. And the only reason is because crispy smashed potatoes to me is not a revelatory thing, right? We've heard it. We've had it at restaurants. I'm sure it's in a few of these cookbooks in this store. It's not to me as special looking back on it, it this recipe I think is pretty special um but I at the time I was like you know we don't need to see this again you know and I really wanted to focus on images that you haven't seen before that were sort of a new take on something and this is the, one of the exceptions there's a few in the book that either things I had done before recipes like a version of that I had published before that I felt like we had seen before and I wanted to kind of start fresh and boy do I regret it but, but you can actually, the New York Times uh, did an excerpt on it, and they took a beautiful photo of it. So if you must see them before you make them, you can check it out there. But Print it out, tape it into your book. Yeah, exactly. Just do like with a frowny face next to it. Like, thanks, Allison. Yeah, I'm very sorry. I might just put it in the next book just because, you know, I'm sorry. So. Maybe like potatoes remixed. You can like yeah. put a little spin on Part it. Part two, and there's like a whole potato chapter. It's all the same recipe. and Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talk in the book about keeping potatoes in your fridge, just yeah. cooked potatoes. Yeah. Anyone else do that? It's a thing that I started doing when I realized I, if I was going out of town and I had all these potatoes or I, like, I looked in my drawer and I was like, oh, God, how old are these? <laughs> They're so old because they keep forever and thought that if I boiled them, I would just eat them. Because if you have a drawer full of raw potatoes and you're running around and you wanted to make something right now, you don't, you're not going to take the time to boil them or roast them. But if you have a bowl of boiled potatoes... You can kind of do anything with them. I eat them like snacks, like dipped in salt. 
which is boring but great. Um, but I've also made you know salads with them, potato salads, niswa salads. I've cut them and roast them in a really hot oven for ten minutes, and they're great. And you can put them in soups. You can do that. You can I don't know do a lot of things with them. One thing a lot of people probably don't know about Allison is that she went to college for creative writing. Did you... And jazz history, which did me a lot of good. I don't know anything about jazz anymore. So... I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you n- always... Me either. <laughs> did you always know you were going to write a book, and did you think that it would be a cookbook ever? Um, I never thought I would make a living writing anything or cooking anything. And now I'm doing both and it feels totally crazy and weird and amazing. Um, but it's just one of those things that seem really far-fetched when people ask you what you want to do. I think I always said, well, I love writing, but I'll, I want to be a veterinarian because that was a job that you have to make money doing and writing is not. Um, it uses <laughs> the jazz knowledge for sure. Yeah. Well, that one was really going to take me far for <laughs> sure. I was going to do big things with that. Um, but no, it always, I sort of did it because I was indulging myself in something I wanted to do, which is exactly how I got into cooking. It was sort of an, a completely impractical and uh, emotional and gut decision, not an intellectual or uh, rational one, which is kind of how I make every decision, even now. It's great. <laughs> uh, so Allison wrote a piece a few weeks ago uh, for Bon Appetit that probably some of you saw about the idea of having people over. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of make a case for not using the E word, entertaining. Yeah. What's the difference? What's the difference between entertaining and having people over? Entertaining to me is like classic Martha Stewart. And you have matching plates and you have centerpieces with like nothing out of place. And you spend a week making a prep list and shopping and calling a butcher and freaking out about something and, you know, being kind of your worst self, right? Like you're stressed out. You're not having a good time. You're panicking that like you don't have enough matching this or you don't have enough, a big enough bowl to have this thing. And you're calling all these people and you're trying to curate the perfect guest list to make sure that there's no awkward pauses. And, you know, I don't know. It just, to me, conjures a lot of stress. And I think it's a really antiquated and dated way of eating, which I think was probably really popular at one time. Um, because that's what I just said. It's dated, um, which means it was in the past. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, and I think now, as with everything, I think people are just a little bit more relaxed, like fast casual this and fast casual that. It's kind of, I guess, fast casual entertaining, um, where you're just kind of a little bit less stressed out about it and you treat it like you're having dinner with your closest friend, but there's eight of them or 10 of them. And some of my most successful um, having people overs is have been on like a Sunday at 11 a.m. and I text my friends. I say, hey, come over for dinner tonight. I've got eight pounds of pork shoulder. And they're like, great, I'll be there. You know, and some people can make it, some people can't, but it doesn't matter because there's no pressure. You're not bummed out when they can't make it. It doesn't ruin your life. You don't feel sad inside and like wonder what you did wrong if you're in a fight Um, because it's last minute. But it becomes a little bit more effortless. And inherently, I think people are more relaxed and then have a better time. And it doesn't matter if it's a Sunday and tomorrow they have work because they're going to have a good time. They're going to get a little loose and it's going to be awesome. And you have a better time in someone's house if the host is having a good time. Oh, And if they're not stressed out. Yeah. I've had people over where I've been stressed out and nobody has a good time (laughs) because I am a monster. Um, just kidding, right, guys? It's funny. Um, but, I, yeah, I think when it's already easy and you kind of have ever done everything in advance and you design a menu to where nothing has to be made right that minute. And we had somebody – I did like a AMA the other day and somebody asked, 
how do I make sure all my food is hot at the same time when I have people over? It really stresses me out when like I feel like this is ready before that and I'm rushing at the last minute. And my advice to that is always don't do that ever. I'm a huge fan of room temperature this and like do ahead that. And that way when everybody comes over, you look super calm and collected even if you've been sweating all day. I stopped over at Allison's house recently and she had snacks ready to go. Do you just keep like a stocked <laughs> pantry for randos who stop She's by? making it like, sound a lot more impressive. It was a cheese. A cheese, singular. It was one cheese. <laughs> With a type of cracker. It was not, but I like what, what you said. Do you keep things around though? Like just in case you like invite friends over, you know, on a Sunday or if some someone stops by someone just drops by yeah that doesn't happen in my life um but I am a huge snacker so I keep snacks around for me and cheese is like you know my number one girl and I've got a fridge full of it at all times um in addition to crackers because you can't go wrong. I mean, also, it's my weird lifestyle where I'm testing recipes and I'm eating and I'm kind of eating all day and it feels weird and bad. And I don't always feel like dinner. So I have sometimes like cheese and popcorn for dinner, which is kind of a sad thing that I just said. But I like it. <laughs> and I feel good about it. So and it's not, you know, I just did a Grub Street diet and I am so embarrassed <laughs> because it is appalling at the amount of food I don't eat. And then when I do the amount of food I do eat and it's just a hot, hot mess. And I was like, well, I've just had a hard week. But no, that's my life. And I, that's every week. So when you do have people over, are there certain things that you like to spend a lot of time on and certain things that you kind of cut corners with? Like, where do you shave off time and just pick up stuff from the grocery store? I like the condiment section in my fridge and in my pantry is very limited. I don't do a ton of store-bought stuff unless it's like olives and cheese and Things that I can't make better, right? So we all have that thing. There's like ketchup, bless you, ketchup and ice cream and Pocky. And there's just like a, this list of things that you should never try to make yourself because it will never be better than what you can buy. And people try, it's not great, Pop-Tarts. Like you can, but should you? I don't know. And so with that type of thing, like I'm never going to make my own sausage. That's never going to happen. I'm not going to, I could make my own yogurt. I'm not going to. And just certain things that if you can buy and they're great, I'm not going to go out of my way to like prove something that I can also make yogurt because it's not going to be better than Faye. <laughs> it's just not. When you, Are you ever in the mood to do kind of like a big cooking project when you have people over though? Like what are the dishes that you love to make when you just are feeling ambitious and feeling like showing off a little? Well, I, I got back from Mexico and I was feeling really inspired. I wanted to make flautas and I was going to make queso and I was going to make like little tostadas. And I was like feeling really jazzed. I bought all these chilies back and I was just so pumped. And it was a nightmare. And I was like, well, all you do is just fill the thing and roll it and fry it. What could possibly go wrong? And it, I was, it was like grease everywhere. I was sweating. <laughs> Everyone's like, it was like 945. We hadn't eaten anything, which is actually pretty typical if you come over to my house. But that was sort of an example of feeling really inspired and excited about doing something and, and halfway through realizing this was a huge mistake <laughs> because not only was, was I poorly set up for it, I was probably too cavalier about it, thinking it wasn't going to be a big deal. And it was a big deal. You know, people will always say, you know, for a dinner party, don't make anything you've never made before. And I sort of ignore that all the time, but that's because of the line of work that I'm in where I'm testing recipes and, you know, I'm making like meatballs for the first time and that's what we're having tonight, and I hope they're good. And um, 
sometimes it's great and they are good and sometimes I'm like, oh. But then there's cheese and crackers and Pocky. So Always have a backup. Yeah. But in general, to answer your question, I guess, uh, I'm not, I don't do those like big, huge projects. I don't think that effort equates deliciousness and I think that oftentimes people get wrapped up in that and they think it's really cool and impressive. Like, I don't have a sous vide machine and I don't, you know, stuff a thing inside another bird and like wrap it in a thing and do it. I don't know. Do people still do that? I don't know. I'm old. Um, but... <laughs> You know, it's just not my style of cooking or eating, so. Another thing I learned about Allison from this book is that she's not really into sweets that much, which kind of surprises me because the desserts in the book are so awesome. But they, a lot of them have kind of like a bitter component or like an acidic component or a salty kind of savory component. Mm -hmm. Do you think like not being into sweets makes you better at or more discerning about making desserts for sure yeah I was a pastry chef for six or seven years um and the people that I learned from were always very very non-traditional in their approach to pastry and they sort of taught me from the very beginning that desserts are just as important as savory food because that's an attitude of every pastry chef they think that their food is just as important as the savory food um which is not an attitude adopted by most of the kitchen surprisingly um but (laughs) You know, that it should be seasoned. It should have acid and it should have salt and it should have complexity in the form of bitterness um, and nuttiness and toastiness. And, you know, so often I think classically desserts are one-dimensional and they're sweet and creamy. I do think that that, because the people that I learned from also shared that attitude toward desserts where they're like, oh, I hate dessert. I never order dessert when I go out. I don't like dessert when I go home. It's just not my thing. And I think when you have that attitude, your desserts sometimes taste better. I made recently the chocolate tahini tart to bring to a dinner party, and it was a huge hit. I would highly recommend it. Yeah. And highly recommend just, like, eating the filling with the spoon, yeah. too. It's so good. Yeah, breakfast, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that's kind of cool about the book is that there are a lot of little recipe components that you can kind of, like, experiment with and try in different contexts, um, like a lot of sauces and little crunchy things to sprinkle on top. Um, when you build recipes, do you kind of think about those individual components? Like, is there a formula to a great vegetable dish? Like, is there, like, um, spicy? Uh... That's what's interesting about writing a cookbook, right? You're immortalizing these recipes, as in, like, you know, these garlicky walnuts go with this eggplant, and that's the dish. But in reality, I use that garlicky walnut stuff on every vegetable. and But I can't say that I can't make a recipe 14 times. That's just the same dressing. Um, so you say, oh, feel free to try this with this vegetable and this vegetable. It's great on everything. But after a certain time, I found myself feeling repetitive thinking, saying, oh, this is great on everything. But I truly believe that if you have a really good sauce or like a nut mixture or a CD sprinkle or, or this or that, you can kind of make something delicious. But generally speaking, you know, it's like vegetable plus crunchy, salty thing plus acid sometimes plus creamy thing plus herb thing is a really good formula very technical formula but it is hard to kind of tell yourself that you can only use yogurt three times in the vegetable section and I actually said she goes one of my favorite things about your book is that I was reading the recipes and I want to make this but with something else and I was like cool I was like I hear you though and that is a compliment and it is sort of like because I do want you to make it your own and I say that but then I'm like oh you made it your own it's not mine but um <laughs> 
but it's true. Like, I want you to take that creamy tahini and serve it with cauliflower instead. And I want you to take that seed roasting technique and use it with squash or sweet potatoes. And I want you to kind of take all of these things and embrace it and do your own thing with it because it's so much more gratifying when you can look at a plate of food and be like, oh my gosh, I just made a thing. I made a recipe. I, it's mine. It's great. It's a great feeling. I can tell you that. Allison wrote a piece for Taste actually recently about how awesome it is to sprinkle crunchy things on everything you eat at any time of the day. It's like a real stoner piece. I'm like, crunchy stuff is good. (laughs) But it's true. So, like, hypothetically, if you were stranded on a desert island, but you got to stop at your apartment on the way there and pick up some stuff from your kitchen... My cat. What would be like your... No, (laughs) that doesn't count. (laughs) Sorry, babe. Uh, I'm assuming you're coming uh, with me. I don't know. Um, No living things, and they have to be crunchy. What are, like, the three crunchy... I what love are the three parameters. Crunchy, but you get three crunchy You want to be prepared, though. If this ever happens to you, start thinking about your answer right now. Okay. Uh, breadcrumbs. Uh, can I say seeds? Sure, yeah. Okay. Nuts. Like, just general. Like, I would grab, like, the first seed I saw. Yeah, breadcrumbs, nuts, seeds. Gosh, I don't know. I really, I'm, because those are the only things I have prepared. Like, buck, oh, buckwheat. I have, I keep that around, like toasted buckwheat groats are really awesome. They're super toasty. I eat them when I'm stressed out, just snacking on the phone. If you're talking to me on the phone, I'm probably eating buckwheat groats. Do you eat it with a spoon? No, I I sprinkle them into my hand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very normal. Yeah. Uh, What what else do you use them for? What do you put them on? I would be so embarrassed if anyone saw what I did in my kitchen alone all day. (laughs) It is some weird shit. What what else do you put them on? Like, what do you use them in? Uh, the buckwheat stuff I put on salads. I put on pasta. I put on on roasted vegetables. Uh, there's like a savory porridge that I will sprinkle stuff on too. Also, um, soft texture is the enemy of all food, and so I need crunchy things in there at all times. But that doesn't mean that soft food can't be good. You just need to put something crunchy on top of it. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book, the chapter intro called Meeting the One. Oh, yeah. It's about a date that Allison went on like soon after moving to New York. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us about the one? Yeah, it's it's not what you think. Um, <laughs> so when I moved to New York, I, I moved here to not work in restaurants and ended up working for Momofuku, and, which was great. But I knew I did not want to work in a restaurant ever again. I had spent seven years in one and I, I was all set. And uh, I went on the state. We went to Prune, and it was, like, just mind-blowingly good. And from the food and the menu and the service and the music, you know how they played the album straight through? It was like probably like Prince or something. I was like, this is amazing. And it was all women in the kitchen, in the front of the house, and we had Gibsons and a Bronzino. And it, everything we had was exactly what I would have made or exactly how I like to cook. And it was kind of quirky and weird and homey but elegant. And I feel like I'm just complimenting myself right now, but I'm really complimenting the restaurant. Um, But I felt really connected to it and I felt really at home. And uh, it's just really nice when you can feel that way about a restaurant. And I think that's why New York is so special because it's full of those places for all of us, right? And so I made this dish that was sort of like what I would cook for Gabrielle Hamilton. Tell us about the dish. Oh, so it's a steak. It's a big steak. Just salt and pepper seared and then serve with some grilled bread that you top with soft butter and shaved radishes in this caper, anchovy, parsley thing. Like in every one of her dishes, there was capers and anchovies and parsley. At the time, she was serving it with bone marrow and it was just perfect and beautiful. And so this is sort of like a 
homage to her. I feel like we, we live in a culture where it's changing for sure, but you know, where women eat like chicken breast and like chia pudding and I eat steak. And, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> um, but it is something to think about and just owning it and being really into like a piece of very rare bloody meat and someone like Gabrielle Hamilton would definitely empower you to do that. So one last question in 20 years, if you had a restaurant, what would you want future Alison Roman to write about you in her book? Like what would you want people to say about your food and your cooking? Probably what I just said about prune. I I would imagine Um, uh, just that they, they feel really taken care of and they feel like it's, comfortable but also engaging i think that if i ever did have a restaurant and if it was in 20 years it would be not in new york city it would be like in hudson um but (laughs) but it would you know i'd be like take the salty approach where i'm open from you know nine to four four days a week and that's it and if you come great if you don't that's also cool with me and then maybe once or twice a week do a dinner And then have people, you know, friends of mine come and cook a dinner once a month or something like that. But a very zero pressure, low stakes. And I would always have a chicken on the menu. There we go. Yeah. Easy formula. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Allison. And thanks for coming, everyone. Yay. Here's Deb Perlman answering a reader question. So we live here. You live in New York. You're a New Yorker. Like you have a couple kids. You've got a husband. You like to like do things. You're like one of those do things kind of people. So what are some of the cool like food um, destinations, tourist attractions that you <laughs> that you end up going to that are actually worth it? I um I kind of feel like this is where I'm supposed to tell you about some restaurant that's already gotten a ton of hype, but like there's no fun in that at all. I um. I um I think you gotta go out for like hand pulled noodles in Chinatown. I did that a couple weeks ago with my kid, and I was like, he's never seen hand pulled noodles before. He has to experience this. You gotta get five dumplings for a dollar in Chinatown. You gotta you gotta go to Benihana like once. I know it's all over the country, but like we, I had to go there with my kids when they were little, and they just they just loved it. There was just it was so much fun. But what about Katz's? Are you pro or con on the Katz's so waiting actually, in line? So actually, I don't. I, uh, I, uh, you know, I feel like you can go every few years. Like, we'll go every few... We're actually, like, because we don't live that far from there, so you think we'd go all the time, but it's always the opposite effect. Um... Yeah, no, I feel like you got to go. And I was actually thinking that was like something I'm due to do with my kids again because they they need to they need to have gone there. Um, are you pastrami or corned beef? Do you have a side there? Definitely a pastrami person. But so what are a few other places that you like to t- go to, like say yearly, make a yearly pilgrimage? Oh my goodness, why? We haven't talked my... about pizza at all. I know. Oh my God, because I'm friends with a couple of pizza obsessives <laughs> and it's like, don't even get me started. I have just random pizzas. I'm a Joe's girl. I love a mm-hmm. Joe's slice. I think it's the perfect meal. I'm happy to get my kids a Joe's slice for dinner once in a while um what else then i have like peculiar pizzas where i really like the motorino ramp pizza which is probably like the most hipster thing i've ever said i am pro ramp um no i love their it's it's actually more of like a flatbread it doesn't have like that much in common with pizza but i just i think it's very fresh and bright you stick with your east village spots you live in the east village i love this why would you ever need to leave this if it's above 14th street <laughs> okay then I'll but, let me- okay okay so my favorite soup dumplings are in williamsburg i love the ones at m shanghai i will fight anyone who disagrees with me i've had them all and they're my favorite 
let's close with another East Village institution, Vasalka. Okay. Are you? Well, you really like stop talking. Like, you're not. <laughs> I'm into like, Vasalka? okay, so tell me. No, I am. I am. It's not my favorite. Uh, there okay. were there were a lot. Of, there were over the years many other Ukrainian places that I've liked a lot more that have closed. I um I think if you want to be like really serious about your Varniki and your Pelmeni, you should go to the Ukrainian National Home. It is zero atmosphere, and that's kind of part of its charm. Have you had dumplings there before? There's also this um church basement that does dumplings um just like as a, few a fundraiser months. yeah it's just like they just they just do it during certain months of the year um in the east village so i'm not saying you can't go to Vasalka. i just mm-hmm. mean that like it wouldn't be my first did you go choice. to that place on avenue a that closed maybe like 10 years um, ago odessa odessa yeah um i used to go there when i lived on avenue b yeah um, and we would go there a lot i would also go there it was um they made giant loaves of challah bread like in a loaf pan and i would whenever i wanted to make french toast for friends god that is so me like, come over guys i'm making french toast this is what i did in my 20s i was so cool <laughs> was guys rad. um i would get the challah bread there and um and it was just perfect so it was freshly baked all the time well thanks for those food memories <laughs> it. the taste podcast is hosted by anna hiesel and myself matt rodbard it is produced by gabrielle lewis our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Special thanks to Books Are Magic fan Emma, Michael, and Mike. Confidence wine supplied by Smith & Vine. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. Tune in next week.